All right, guys, welcome to Do Good Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Watson, and in today's episode, I'm speaking with Colin R. Turner. He's an author, musician, and a social activist. He's got two books out. One's called F-Day, The Second Dawn of Man, and Into the Open Economy, which has been translated into many languages. He's also the founder of the Free World Charter, which is a petition that advocates 10 guiding principles for a money-free world, which has been viewed by many millions of people and endorsed by people from practically every country in the world so first of all Colin thanks for agreeing to chat with me today thanks Rob it's great to be on thanks for inviting me on really happy to be here great stuff so I think first I think one thing that drew drew to me I said it just before we started speaking that you know I watched your TED talk which I'll put a link to in the show notes to everyone to check it out and I was just really inspired by it and I've um you know it it kind of aligned with some of my own sort of thinking and issues with the world but I think rather than delve into it too much if you can just give a bit of an overview of what the free world charter is and um, how it kind of came about Sure. Yeah, the Free World Charter is something that um, is a, like um, a website that I created in 2010, 2011. And um, it really was um, inspired by things like the Zeitgeist Movement or the Venus Project, which were advertising post-money society. And um, I felt that um, a lot of those organizations were lacking some sort of uh, core principle, core operating principles, for want of a better phrase. Um, as to how such a society would operate and uh, I sort of gave myself the task to sort of uh, imagine what such uh, what those core guiding principles would be and um, well over a long period of time and research I eventually came up with those 10 principles of the charter which are basically uh, outlining um, our best practices best behavior really for uh, for creating optimum outcome for every person and every being on earth so that's basically the um, that's basically the the short and the, the long and the short of it that it's um, a way of basically what is uh, the optimum way that we need to behave in order to create the best outcome for environment and for ourselves and obviously for our co planetary cohabitants which are very important too so the free world charter um yeah sprang from that and it um it kind of snowballed really kind of straight away was good where well, the zeitgeist movement picked it up and a lot of the other guys like the ubuntu who you mentioned before they picked it up and they were sharing it around so there was a whole um it was quite a, a big buzz at the time around this kind of topic and um, so it's really starting 2012 and then going right through 2014 2015 we had a lot of um traction there and then come into 2015 uh, because we were relying so heavily on social media for attraction that uh, when facebook changed their rules 2015 2016 it kind of it hit us hard and it hit hard a lot of uh, guys who are working in that kind of space because um we're obviously we're not um we don't have budgets to promote our things which is obviously what facebook was they wanted people to do so um so yeah i would say that it had been really it was really um accelerating for quite a few years until they sort of kind of plateaued down sort of 2017 2016 2017 and obviously I've been busy in other projects as well and uh, the I saw the opportunity come up to do a TEDx talk in Galway um, early last year and um, I applied for it and uh, a few people proposed me for it as well which was nice so yeah I got to I got to um, get up there and uh, more or less take a make a very brief synopsis of 
the sort of uh, vision that I and probably you are kind of uh, campaigning for. And um, yeah, it was really, really well received. I was, I was really happy about that. Um, I wanted to make it something, uh, something very uh, simple and accessible for people to understand. So the, the title of the talk was just called What Would Happen If Everything Was Free? And um, that's really kind of a good, it's an accessible springboard for people to sort of get into the idea, to, to kind of um, experiment with that, with that thought. And, um, well, I think I, 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 um, I capitulated it quite well there on the night, so um, I was happy with that. But I also, um, surprisingly, had a lot of um, um, enthusiastic support from people there in the, in the theatre there in Galway, where I did it, actually, was people were coming up and shaking my hand, kind of saying, wow, this is, you're, right, you're absolutely right, I never thought about that. And that was, that was a surprise, you know, I was more or less... Um, thinking that the, it would be met with quite, with quite a lot of scepticism. But uh, no, it was actually really received really, really well. So I'm happy about that. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, I've, um, you said about a few of the things, you know, Zeitgeist Movement, I remember watching that. I think it was Peter Joseph, wasn't it, who created um, those series of uh, documentaries. And they really kind of, I'd say like shook me awake a little bit. I think I was, for quite a few years, I was like, things feel off. You know, the, the way the system's in place, you start to question the path that we're on. Like my own experiences, you since birth were kind of sold what an idea of success looks like. You know, and that very much involves getting the job, getting the car, buying the big house, you know, going down that route. And then supposedly that's meant to be the idea of success. But then you, you're left with this big gaping hole of thinking, mm-hmm. actually, no, there's something really missing there. And I, I was going around seeking and scratching everywhere trying to, uh, understand stuff and I think around that time 2011 was well everything was kind of exploding a bit on the internet building up to 2012 there's you know there's a lot of sort of prophecies around 2012 and I think maybe that's a bit of a turning point for humanity but watching the zeitgeist movement and and then that led me onto the venus project and then eventually the ubuntu movement and then seeing what you're doing but yeah, it is a shame what you're saying about how the algorithms have changed on Facebook because I, I follow another group called Collective Evolution and they have millions and millions of followers. And mm-hmm. the way they've changed the algorithm, barely, they barely any of the content gets seen anymore. So it's really mm-hmm. frustrating yeah. from that perspective. It's kind of like it's been it nipped in the bud by the, you know, the powers yep. that be. Um, Absolutely. Frustrating. Yeah. But these seeds have certainly been planted. Um, mm-hmm. So how do you see... Um, you know, how do you see a world without money? What, what, maybe for people who were maybe listening to this and who were as if they were just coming to this from the first perspective, like if they're so entrained with thinking, well, money's what, I think we've been told, haven't we? Money makes the world go round. You know, we've been told that belief since such a young age when actually, in fact, it feels like it's more like it's people in the creative endeavors that make the world go round and, you know, the resources that are available and, We've been going on this kind of deaf economy for so long. I think John Perkins speaks about that, that we need to shift from a deaf economy to a life economy. But yours goes way further than that because it's almost the end of money. So what, what does it kind of look like? Yeah, well, I just wanted to rewind a little bit there of what you were saying about when you're watching the, the Zeitgeist movement and um, the Venus Project like in that, back in that time, sort of, um, it was quite a fertile time for these ideas, 2011, 2012. But if you actually rewind a little bit further back, if you go back to say 2008, you had the, uh, the banking crash. And then even before that again, then you had like this, this uh, meteoric rise of the internet and also the, of 
the, the sudden possibilities of free stuff. Like you had sites like Napster and uh, MySpace and uh, all these other things where we were basically offering like massive amounts of free content, which ha we had never imagined before, you know? And this, um, this had a huge impact on, of course, a lot of the uh, artistic and creative industries like music, uh, which is one that affected me, of course, directly. And of course, um, like newspapers and journalism, all that sort of stuff, they've all been really hit hard by this, the advent of free content. So against the backdrop of this, um, this sudden new technology that was offering us all this great stuff for free, then on the same time, then a few years later, then you had the banking crash and uh, you suddenly realize what a bloody swindle was going on, how, mu how much money, obscene money people were making basically off the backs of other people's misery. People were getting thrown out of their houses while other people were making millions off their loans. And I think that that disparity uh, between, um, or not the disparity, but really the, 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 the confluence of this kind of massive amount of free content coming online and the sudden uh, apparent injustice in the system that we were all operating under, I think that was really like a flashpoint for creating the, um, the sort of uh, rise in, in this kind of uh, thinking that we see. Um, but yeah, in, in terms of uh, love the, the money-free world, how, how does the money-free world work? Yeah, I know John Perkins, of course, and uh, I, I admire his work as well. And um, it depends really, when you talk about a money-free society, it kind of depends on who you listen to <laughs> really a lot because Michael Tellinger and Ubuntu have one particular um, methodology Venus Project might have another, and Peter Joseph another again. But my, my own personal way of viewing it has kind of um, evolved somewhat since, um, since I set out with the, in my journey, say in 2011, where I was more or less advocating, okay, look, technology is just going to surpass the market system, and we're just going to have to, we're just going to uh, employ robots and automation to more or less to do everything, to be, to be our slaves, basically. And uh, we can just relax and live the high life and, um, you know, and write crappy poetry and <laughs> this sort of stuff. But I, I, uh, I've kind of, I've come back from that a little bit. Um, I'm much more skeptical now than I was then about um, technology and how it can be really leveraged to, um, to liberate us. Because there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the technology is not liberating us as as much as we would like, because once we once we solve one uh, basic problem, then we, we create another layer of sort of um, of services. For example, you know, like um, you know, you, you, for example, if you imagine like a few hundred years ago, maybe you had to your most important job was to get up and and uh, dig the ground to plant your food, um, and of course that's all not unheard of nowadays you know no one or almost no one grows their own food but now we have this other layer of other necessities that we things that we have to do like the jobs that we have to engage in wherever whatever that is and a lot of these tend to be um service jobs which are non-essential but it kind of it's it shows that the more we progress technologically it doesn't it doesn't actually tend to free us as much as we would like to think maybe it frees us from hard labor um, and the, the really tough jobs, but it also it creates other opportunities for us to keep getting engaged. And of course, when you're when everything is um, set against a backdrop of the market system, then of course that's always the way it's going to go. You're going to say, okay, I have a new innovation now. So how can I market this? How can I sell it? How can I uh, get a million users for my product? 
or whatever. And that's, that's always the way it's going to go because the thinking is always, is always based around, okay, how are we going to make this marketable? How are we going to make it a success? As you say, you mentioned earlier about success. So we, um, we are still, as you mentioned before we came on, you're still sort of ingrained with this idea that, you know, your life must be a success. You know, you have to perform certain functions to make your life a success. And of course, in this day and age, success equals big bank account. So, um, like I say, I'm, I'm more skeptical of the technological side of things because I also think that um, a lot of the connection between people is actually being lost through technology. You know, we say like we have Facebook where we have billions of people connected all over the world, which is fantastic, but it's also creating a kind of physical disconnection between people, which is um, something that I think is quite sad, you know? Yeah. Okay, thanks. And um, what we have to do, I think, yeah, sorry, I'm just uh, somebody's leaving there. Um, yeah, the, the Facebook basically, and all the social media technology has basically uh, brought people together, but it's also created, made us more physically distant. I don't know if you've heard uh, these like news stories of um, of young men in Japan who basically are hermits living in their their small flats. And they just they're they're technologically connected to everyone, but they actually never almost never leave their their flats, which is quite sad, you know. And a lot of them, of course, have um, you know suffer have depression and anxiety and all that that sort of stuff. So it's not for me. It's not so simple as okay, let's just build great machines and let's just have an easy life. It's it's more about well, we have to think about what what actually do we want to achieve? What is what is the end goal? And is the end goal just doing nothing? Well, I don't think that's a good end goal. I think the end goal obviously should be to be happy and to be fulfilled. You know, I think everyone would agree with that. Um, so I'm leaning more towards um, trying to rebuild communities and trying to encourage cooperation, encourage sharing between people and making that sort of the, the primary approach towards money-free world is that basically if we all start sharing and cooperating more we start we create this new precedent for um type of behavior which can lead us into uh, a money-free world and of course we can leverage technology any way we want but the point is that if if we should we should prioritize um working together again and being uh, being cooperative because i think that really is in our nature you know we're a social species of course and um, we're just happier and we feel better when we're working with other people, you know, in general. So my, my thinking now is what I promote nowadays is called an open access economy, which is something similar to a resource-based economy, except it's sort of it's in reverse. Where a resource-based economy might say, let's leverage science and technology to create a better world and everyone's happier that way. Where I would say, okay, well, let's, let's start working together and cooperating and use technology as well, secondary. So that's the that's the that's the main difference um, between that. So I imagine that uh, a money-free world is a world where basically we have uh, more vibrant communities, people connected to each other, people sharing goods and services, and um, eventually that if we if enough of us do that, it can um, it can fill out to um, bring in all the other the large corporations and all the the massive institutions that we rely on that eventually they will fall to this way of thinking as well at least that's my theory 
it reminds me a little bit the is it the Buckminster Fuller quote about it's not about transforming the current si- systems in space it's about creating new ones and by creating the new ones you make the old ones obsolete and it feels very much at the moment that the systems are buckling under the weight they're, they're way too big like you talk about the banking system in 2008 it's not really been solved it's just you know debt has just got higher and higher the last 12 years um yeah. You know, the political systems in place, the control, how it's very much a top-down approach. Um, mm. So, yeah, it just feel like what you're talking about and what other people are talking about is like, it's almost, it's a grassroots movement. It's, you know, it's, it's mm. turning, it turning mm. it on its head rather than it being a top-down approach. It's, you know, it's people in the community making their own decisions for their own life. And yeah, it's, I, I think it's really important to make the distinction between sort of what sort of what kind of what kind of revolution we're kind of we're we're talking about here? Um, it's not it's not as you say where we all just go out and protest and protest protest the streets and then the government crumbles and then they create this whole new society. I think that's like that's uh, that's really really unlikely that that's going to happen. You know, um, um, and also um, it's not. I don't believe, as I said earlier, that like science and technology will just become so overwhelming that the market will just crumble under the weight of it. I don't really necessarily believe that will happen either because there's always new financial and business opportunities, no matter what technology you throw out there. And that's a, that's a, a fact basically for the last 60 years. So if you were talking about like a resource-based economy based on science and technology, well, I mean, that science and technology has been around for at least 30 years. And of course it hasn't precipitated that kind of that society. So yeah, exactly. I think what we're talking about is um, it's not so much a revolution of like a, a sudden dramatic change. It's more like a gradual shift and a constant shift moving from one set of behavior to another set of behavior, you know. Um, so I, I said on Twitter there recently when someone asked me about that, I said uh, it's it's not so much the revolution, not so much a bloody riot as it is like a penguin shuffle. <laughs> this is one of the analogy that I used. And I think that's, um, this is kind of like, um, this is how any great so- social change has usually happened, is that a, a, new, a new opportunity for a different type of behavior appeared and people just slowly migrated towards that type of behavior. And uh, I think that that's the best chance for moving towards this kind of society. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I love that analogy of the penguin shuffling along because it's much more, it's going to be a much more harmonious transition going through that instead. Because if, because mm. for instance, the way COVID has, has happened, you know, when all the, the financial systems collapsed, well, it appeared to collapse. Now, if, if the governments hadn't got in place and kind of, you know, offered the furlough scheme and all that things, then it really would have been, that would have been, a, a total collapse in many ways um but them stepping in you know i've got many issues with with our governments and stuff for sure um but we do need that shuffling approach and if it takes i think when i first watched all the zeitgeist movies i was like oh this is all going to change in the next decade and it's like no like i might not even be here when it's finally transformed it might be a hundred years away but i think it's mm-hmm. It's quite good to think of it that way, some ways, because at least we can be putting the the things in place now for our children's children's generations, because they're the ones that are going to be left with this world. And I know when reading your stuff, I think when um, when you were younger and you were really disillusioned with the, the way you were treating the planet, and 
Like that's one big thing that's happened. You know, the amount of species that we've lost the past 50 years, what we're doing to the toxins in the environment and stuff. And it's like, it's just like, we're just devastating it. And I'm, I'm about to become a father for the first time next month. And I'm thinking about that child and what world they're coming into. So I'm like, I want to do what I can do. And I know I spoke to um, Daniel Pinchback recently. He was on my podcast. And um, like what he was talking about, like the things that we have to do to change the world. And, and for me, my focus is coming on, well, sometimes those big things can seem overwhelming when we've got our own things going on in our life. It's like, what can we do each day to, to make a difference? And I know I'm, I'm rambling a little bit here, but I know a thing that you spoke about is like, like volunteering seems to be a big step in that direction. And it shows, and there's so many people doing it already that are just naturally giving up the time, even though we live in this system, so many people are already stepping outside of that. Yeah. And that's one of the, one of the um, more compelling uh, um, arguments that I would make for um, this kind of society is the amount of the number of people who volunteer today when it's absolutely fundamentally detrimental to do it, you know, because you're losing a chance to earn money, you know, and it's costing you money probably to do what you're doing, you know, but the fact that people still do it anyway, it's like, wow, imagine if you didn't have that cost restriction, you know, and that's, that's great. And uh, yeah, I think as regards the, um, the shift in behavior, I think it, it has happened. It has already started. I mean, when, I, when, when, like I was saying, when in early 2000s, when the internet was really rising, we saw this massive um, advent of free content, of really high quality free content. And that, that hasn't stopped, you know, that's still going. I know we, we, I know we kind of curtailed, we got rid of Napster and, or Metallica did. And uh, we, got, we sort of, um, we've curtailed a lot of that and we're controlling it. And I'll just talk about music, which is what I know about most, but obviously uh, it applies to other things like journalism and video content and stuff as well. But um, we, the, the sort of cat is out of the bag there now. We know that basically um, people expect a certain amount of free stuff on the internet now which was absolutely unheard of 20 or 30 years ago so that's already that's already a change that's not going back that's not going back in the box you know i mean we'll we'll try and monetize it a bit more you know blah 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 but eventually that's you know that's going to be people expect to go onto youtube now and find pretty much anything that they that they want to watch maybe they have to sit through an ad but it's a small price to pay uh, but the point is that that was absolutely unheard of 20 or 30 years ago to be able to have that really high quality access to content and then of course you have the, like the open source movement as well which is another really important um thing that people like uh, coders and developers are putting together software in their own spare time and you what you have is like you have this massive numbers of people working on a single project and that creates a really high quality product at the end um like linux or ubuntu these operating systems you have maybe like a few hundred thousand people who are kind of contributing code into that that's really interesting as well and that of course can be um, applied to other uh, sectors as well not just computing there's actually a really good website called open source ecology actually which is all about uh, building your own farming and agri agricultural tools and methods and of course that's all free as well so with this this advent of free is not stopping you know and it's going to continue continue as uh, on the same trajectory of course and uh, I'm here to help it along in any way I possibly can. And one of the things actually you mentioned there about um, 
the COVID um, situation, how the government handled the thing. I think actually in general, the, the governments have been real, quite responsible really uh, in all that thing. And um, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of happy with the way that's been handled really on the, in a, from a media point of view. I know there's other conspiracies against that, but I think it's in general, it's, it's good to err on the side of public safety. But uh, one of the things that, I mean, you were talking about like how they're managing to prevent the economy stalling and prevent collapsing. Well, obviously, they're just somebody somewhere is just printing more and more money or whatever, you know, say, OK, we need another we need another couple of trillion here. OK, no problem. We'll just make it, you know, just it, it, it really just it literally comes out of thin air. You know, okay, we'll, we'll invent this document here and then we'll sell this to this guy and we'll sell to that guy. And it's all just ridiculous uh, magic show, really. There's nothing, there's no other way to put it. And uh, one of the things that I'd like to, to discuss there, or would like to mention there, is about um, other, other sort of, um, there's other facets to our society which actually prove that our society doesn't work. But we kind of, it's like these big band-aids that we have to keep, to keep it all together. And one of them, of course, is debt. Uh, debt is, um, it's like, it's basically, it's a way of pushing money into society when that side of society is, it's not working you know it's like giving uh, like adrenaline to a to a drug addict or something like that you know they're they're strung out whatever they've nothing left okay give them another shot give them a shot and we keep doing this give them a more shot into the patient and it's basically money from thin air i'm sure you don't need me to spell that out to you most people know that money comes from commercial loans you go into the bank asking for a hundred thousand pound loan then they literally type that number into existence there, and then assuming they assuming you're approved, and um, this so this like uh, this debt, this absolute mountain of debt that we carry in society, something on the order of four or five hundred trillion now worldwide, is for me is proof that capitalism isn't working because when you really think about it, I mean, if 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 we base our society on trade, then why would we ever need to owe anything? Why would, why would we need to owe something? You know, surely if, it, if I trade something with you, you trade something with them and blah, 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 and everyone makes uh, money through that, then why would anyone ever need to borrow anything? You know, I mean, it's, it's like uh, the debt is kind of is covering up the fact that if you took all, if you stripped all that debt away and everyone just traded with what they had and have and they could do, then it wouldn't work. It clearly wouldn't work. Um, the other two, the other two uh, things of society, obviously, a charity is another thing. Um, charities exist to basically solve problems that capitalism can't solve, like homelessness and poverty, and you know, uh, rape victims and all that sort of stuff. Um, these things are basically things which are discarded by capitalism. Things that that the market can't find a solution for. So, charity is like a, is kind of the clunky sort of solution and say okay well everyone just put money in this box and we'll try and solve the problem with whatever shillings you give us and of course the welfare system um dole payments job seekers allowance or whatever you, you call it wherever you are this welfare system food stamps why would a why would a, a functional capitalist society ever need to actually give people free money or we can talk about universal basic income even you can look that into the same thing there why would that ever be necessary if trade really worked so it's like um the the system always finds a way ingenious ways of perpetuating itself whereas in, in like in charity or in debt and other stuff and that's that's something that um 
could technically go on and on forever. We can just keep going with it. We can put universal basic income in, and we can keep monetizing the technology, et cetera, et cetera. But at some stage, we have to realize, well, actually, this machine thing isn't working, and it's creating all kinds of aberrations. Let's not even get into like uh, the whole uh, me uh, mental illness and all this sort of stuff that people are, are suffering from stress and depression and all that sort of stuff because they're outcast from the system or they're, they feel like they're not good enough and they're not, they're not a, fun a proper functioning person. So um, I think that's move. I don't know. I just think that to get to the to, to money free society requires um, a behavioral change, an uh, intentional behavioral change. I don't think it's going to happen automatically. I don't think technology is going to bring it. I think it needs to come from us, uh, from normal, regular people. Um, let's. I'm going to to put to put a, a word is middle class people. I think are the key to bringing about that kind of money-free society because like it or not, middle-class people are the ones who rule the world. They are the ones who are oiling and, and greasing the machine all the time. We're the ones with, who do the, who had the expensive habits, the expensive, um, whatever purchasing habits. And uh, so we're the ones who's keeping things going. You know, it's not the bankers, it's not the, the CEOs, that sort of stuff. All they're doing is just servicing what we want and the poor people who are living in, in the third world, they, well, they basically don't have a vote. They don't have, they don't have any sort of clout or power on the world stage. So really that's why I think it falls down to, to middle-class people to actually, to actualize this kind of society by, by starting to think differently. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. And just on that thing about the middle classes with what we've gone through with COVID, because basically the world stopped for a few months in that time, all them people for the majority would have really focused more on what is the essentials? What's the important things in our lives? It's not the new iPhone. It's not getting the new car. It's not going on holiday because all them things were pretty much pulled away from them. And what we've known on our street, you could lump me in that middle-class um, society in that section of that group is that all our neighbors become more connected and we're spending more time together and we're sharing more information. And, Good. and from that, that's the thing, that's the, that's the key, you know, that's, that's what's going to, you know, rather than just be sat at home. I think when TVs got invented, wasn't it? Before TVs were invented, everyone was in and out of everyone's home. No one used to lock the front door. You know, that's yeah. what my grandma would talk about. Everyone would just be in and out of everyone's house. As soon as the TVs get put in, or you'd walk down the street and there'd just be a little glow in everyone's house and everyone's indoors. And that's where everyone's getting their information from. And I think since that point, and then again, like you said, with technology, and yeah, it appears that we're more connected, but actually it's, it's done the opposite. And mm -hmm. I just want to bring, come back to the money thing because it's such mm -hmm. a big thing. I, I speak to people about it all the time as much as I can. Like we're, we're literally enslaved through this system, completely mm -hmm. enslaved. And you know, what a, when ask, ask anyone, and it happened with COVID, most people would have first thought about, they would have thinking about where am I going to get my food from and where am I going to get my money from? They were the two mm. things because it's like the very basic needs. Now, obviously, we're always going to need food. I'm always going to need shelter. But if there's a different system in place that negates them worries, and mm. you mentioned earlier on about living in community more, and that's mm. something that I'm really become 
really fascinated by and seeing how people people do it. Like there's a few, I don't know if you've heard of them. There's um, there's one in Wales called the Lamas community. Now the Welsh government were very forward thinking in a way. They allowed a certain group of people to buy agricultural land. So at that agricultural price, so they were able to buy something like 12 acres for something like 20,000 pound, which is significantly less than, you know, what would you pay if, if that was to build a property on? And part of the, the remit for them was to make sure that they can develop an income from their land. So I think mm-hmm. some of the families, they've invested 20, 25,000 pound in this and their land is making them an income through growing foods. Some of them weave, some of them have Airbnbs on there, just a way of generating the income without them thinking they've got a 30 year mortgage. They're locked in, you know, a lot of the choices in life seem to seem to go away. So what you're talking about, it can definitely be a wake up call for certain people. And I think COVID has been that wake up call for a lot of people, but I think on the back of it, what you're talking about can build even more momentum about moving to a society where there is less stress. Like we don't need to be in such struggle. And when you realize it as well, the material possessions do not bring happiness, do not bring contentmentness, do not make you feel fulfilled. The thing that makes me feel fulfilled is for instance, I do this podcast I'm recording this with you. It doesn't cost me anything to record it. It doesn't cost me anything to put it out. It's just my time that's needed to, to, do, to go into it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the more things like that, like I get more fulfillment out of this than actually, you might get a buzz from buying something new, but like anything, it doesn't last. And then you're always chasing after the next thing. So like you said, it's the middle classes. It's, it's we've mm-hmm. got the power to make mm-hmm. the shift ourselves by becoming more aware of our choices and our actions rather than thinking it's up to the government to change it or it's up to the corporation. It's actually, no, it's us and our actions that change. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we're, we're the ones uh, in control, really. I mean, we, don't, we often don't feel like it or we don't think of, but uh, I mean, if we all withdrew our purchasing overnight, then they, they, would, <laughs> they would be uh, hell to pay. You know, there they would be absolutely... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's the, the COVID thing really has been a, an, an amazing experiment, for want of a better word. I mean, it's it just it showed completely naked what actually we need. You know, we don't fucking need this thing that we're supposed to think we need, but actually, we need food. Oh my God, we need food. We need uh, you know all this really basic stuff. And uh, I love the way COVID really reduced um society down to that basic need and of course on the other on the other side of the coin it also showed who are the really important workers that's that's the real thing that i think was amazing you know suddenly you saw you saw in plain daylight oh those are all the bullshit jobs these are all the people who are sitting at home and these people are out working their asses off these are the people actually that are in the important jobs and when you when you start to actually see it in that stark contrast you know the people who are working and the people who are not working and you also start to notice well actually the people who are still working these are the ones who are getting shit pay and the ones who are sitting at home um, relaxing after the bullshit job are getting the huge pay and you start to think well there's something seriously wrong about with that you know uh, it's like um, i mean it's almost like there, our pay scale is completely wrong way around you know that the people who whose jobs we need the most get paid the least and the people whose job we need the least get paid the most it, re- it really is that bizarrely upside down you know and uh, i love the way covid has really kind of presented that uh, that 
fact to people so so obviously. So, but can it can it be um, can it be utilized as a as a as a stepping point? Yeah, I think so. I think it's good to for people to have had that little bit of a wake up call to see what's important and what isn't, because we have really been fooled, I suppose, to as to what we think is important, which isn't important. And of course, you talk about the um, the, 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 the middle class as being enslaved. Well, in some ways, we're I mean, we're, we're, we're absolutely bombarded with messages about the things that we need to purchase every day, you know? I mean, was, and you can't, you can't deny the impact of that. You know, people often say, ah, oh, it's just an advert, it's just a billboard, it doesn't matter. But these things have impact because companies wouldn't pay millions and millions of pounds to put them there if they didn't work. So, you I mean, we are being influenced all the time with, um, with, with advertising and marketing. I mean that's that goes without saying, and uh, so the fact that COVID came along then and said, well, okay, well, all this marketing thing was bullshit. Actually, we have to think about food and that sort of stuff. So I love the fact that that happened. Um, I would like to see that it could actually. One of the problems with COVID is actually is that it has kind of reduced our ability to to commune with each other. You know, to actually go out and meet people and that sort of stuff. That's that's been a bit of a pain, and. Um, I would have liked to have seen that maybe the people could actually get together and do more sharing and cooperation during that time. But of course, it's uh, it's not very safe to do that. So um, that's been a bit of a shame inside of it. But at least I think it's been a good flashpoint for people to to realize uh, what's important and what isn't. Um, I, during the COVID thing, um, we set up, myself and a couple of other people, we set up a website called ShareBay. And this is basically, it's a kind of a prototype for the sort of thing I'm talking about where um, people are, can share and cooperate, volunteer um, goods and services between other people uh, globally. So we, this is um, sharebay.org if you want to check it out. It's basically, it's, it's like we're only starting out. It's like we're kind of trying to define it as like a library of goods and services where everyone offers something for free. And because you offer something for free, then you obviously can avail of free things there from the thing. So it's like a kind of a miniature free economy, if you like. So that's going really well. And um, I'm hoping that um, on the back of the COVID thing, we can actually sort of uh, advance that out to, to other places. Um, in UK, I know there's quite a few other um, interesting initiatives like that. You might know um, helpfulpeeps.com. And there's another one called Olio, which is based in London, which they have an app, like a food sharing app. Uh, so there's lots of these little um, things coming out around. I mean, ShareBay is one, but there are lots of them. There's um, nextdoor.com, I think, is another one might be in the UK. I'm not sure. So I think uh, there is there's an invitation to, um, to communities to start getting involved in these kind of websites, uh, tool libraries, repair cafes, this sort of stuff. These are really, really great ideas, I think, because they're, they're people offering things for other people. There's no reward expected. Um, it's basically just people helping because people like to help. And that's, of course, one of the things that we've been lied about, is that uh, we don't do anything. You know, such thing as a free lunch. You don't get something for nothing. These are absolute lies. Um, of course, you get something for nothing. We do it all the time, you know. And uh, of course, there is such a thing as a free lunch. You know, I mean, it's we're we're so bombarded with this kind of um, distortion, distorted sort of worldview 
and it's with the backdrop of you know consumer marketing and all that sort of stuff so we we uh we kind of lost the ability to see what's what's important and what what isn't and what kind of things we like as you mentioned yourself i mean you do the podcasts it takes it takes a certain it takes you a certain amount of time you do it because you like it and you enjoy it i do what i do because i like it and i enjoy it too um I'm, i often get people often complain to me because i, I won't take payment for things but uh I sometimes uh, i do because i have to take payment for some things but in general yeah i mean we're all we're all pretty much the same. We all love to get out there and do things and be we like we like we do like to have the admiration and respect of other people and one of the ways to get respect and admiration from people is to help people you know and that that's good that's something that's that's something that we need you know we need to have that you know we need to feel valued and uh, we've kind of i don't know we've misappropriated that sort of value system in money you know we said well your value is now this amount of money that you have in your bank account. That's your value. And if you have no money, then this is your value. You're, you're a valueless person. And that's, that's just complete um, bullshit, you know. And uh, we need to move away from that because it's just, it's too damaging. It's just absolutely too damaging. And I mean, I'm sure we, I know loads of people. I'm sure you know plenty of people who are, maybe they're out of work. They, they can't work. They have, they, they're, have some issues mental issues or maybe or something like that or they they're i don't know they're just um they're like dro- dropped out or outcast from society a little bit because they're not abc or whatever and uh, that's an awful shame you know and these are people really really bright and amazing people that i know who are marginalized by the system this distorted system of value so i think we need to move back towards um back towards communities you mentioned television sorry to keep going on but you mentioned television as well and that is exactly another layer of technology one of the early layers of technology that was kind of removing people from each other separating people from each other and i remember like growing up in the 70s yeah there's more and more people were having tvs and uh, people were starting to become concerned with tvs you know and saying well they, they called it the goggle box or whatever that basically that people were were missing out on that neighborly connection now, I'm, I'm old enough to remember sort of um, in the early 70s how, how strong our own little community was and how people basically were, did look out for each other. You knew your neighbors. Your neighbors knew you. They often dropped in. Sometimes they'd even just walk in the door. The doors would be open. And you knew the people across the street. And uh, if you needed something, I mean, the, the, the proverbial cup of sugar, you know, this is, this is the world I grew up in. You know, we, I grew up in it. There's no such thing as that now, you know. So um, I think we need to get back to that. I really do think we need to get back to that because that that um, physical human connection is vital for our for our for our well-being. Yeah, yeah, loads of great points. It feels like for me, for the transition is like, for instance, I have bills to pay. I've got you know, for me to transition, it's almost like having a foot in each camp. It's like yeah. each week I'm going to volunteer my time. Because I can, and also the great thing about volunteering as well, you've got so much more choice because if you're seeking after a job, there's not all the jobs in the world. You might not, you know, you might want to work in the food industry, but actually there's, you know, there's nothing there, but you can make stuff and volunteer and cook stuff and give it away um, yeah. or, or other thing, but there might not be that, you know, that thing. So 
that's I remember speaking to, I think it was um, to someone else as well about that. It's like, and also you don't have to, there's no pressure as well. It's not like you have to prove yourself when you volunteer. Yeah. It's like, you can just do it. No one's judging you. No one's going to sack mm-hmm. you. No one's going to, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. give you a, a, whatever, you know, it's like, yeah. um, so it feels like to me, like what I'm doing here, I'm almost volunteering my time, but I do some other stuff as well. And, mm-hmm. but I realized yeah. that I need to have a foot in because I can't, I'd love yeah. to just volunteer all the time, but yeah. at the moment it's quite not, you know, well, that isn't the world that I live in at the moment. Of course but I can transition to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, I'm very, very aware of that as well. I mean, I've been somebody who has um, maybe more so than, than most have been uh, affected by that in the realization that well, actually uh, I'm, I'm doing, I'm going too far this way and I need to step back a little bit because I'm going to, I'm in danger of becoming outcast myself, you know, and, and, and becoming uh, powerless i suppose to actually to make some kind of change and also to to have a good quality of life myself and that's really important and i i would i would stress anyone who's sort of thinking along this kind of of this path is not to forget um that you do still have to have bills to pay you do have to put food on the table you're probably not going to grow it yourself and you do you, you need to keep you know at least one and a half feet anyway in the in the real world you know because um if you let yourself slip, then you're just going to drop out of the system and uh, it's not really going to help you. Um, so what, what I really advocate most strongly to people is to, is to share and volunteer what they can without going overboard. You know, uh, That's why we set up the ShareBay thing, ShareBay site. You'll see lots of people are offering goods and services there, but they're all kind of small, small value goods and services. You know, no one's, no one's offering a sports car or no one's uh, you know, giving away their house yet. Although some people have been offered um, free leases on land and stuff like that, which is interesting. But we're seeing that uh, uh, people are just giving away small bits and pieces. And my, my thinking is that if, if enough of us do that, if enough of us give away these just small little bits and pieces to each other, we, we can build confidence in that idea and we can say, okay, well, maybe... Uh, I have confidence now to actually give something a bit of a higher value because I know that I can get something higher value back. So it can be, it can kind of go up like a ladder and as more people use it, then it can eventually uh, take down the whole uh, capitalist structure. I mean, that's my theory anyway, that if, if we build up to so many people and so many uh, transactions and it does, it can create a, uh, a whole new set of behavior in the same way as the internet did or the telephone did or whatever, you know, if we're, we're creating basically a tool to allow people to um, free give, share goods and services with strangers, basically. So that's, that's the difference. I mean, obviously we all do it with our friends and family and our neighbors when we can, but uh, the idea of ShareBay is that it facilitates that kind of stuff between strangers. And that's what we need to, uh, that's what we need to do. And uh, if uh, because it's kind of like a, a closed community or a walled community, you could kind of imagine like that. So you kind of know that everyone else is in that space is doing the same as you. So it's not like someone's just going to come and take, take, take all the time. So it's kind of like a, I kind of like a, a safe space for people to go and share their goods and services there. So um, I would definitely encourage people to check that out anyway if they're interested in, in that train of thought. For me, I I, I just as someone who's kind of really been thinking long and hard about this for maybe 10 years. This is most probably the realistic approach to getting towards a money-free world because 
capitalism that the people everyone complains about capitalism what is capitalism it's basically trading it's trading between you and me you give me some item and i give you something of equal subjective value and that's capitalism so it's an, it's an exclusive exchange between two people multiply that out by millions of billions of people that's your system um, but if we start introducing a new type of behavior, say, okay, well, you give me something and I give you nothing back, and then, but I give something to someone else, and they give something to someone else. That's I, I call it. I call it like an, an implicit trade system, where it's kind of like it's not explicit. Is where you give exchange between one person. The implicit is where you kind of it's like a circular uh, trading system where I give to you, but because I know you will probably give to someone else, because you know they will probably give to someone else. So. It's a, it's a system based on trust. And of course, trust is the opposite of money because this is why, this is why we use money because it's a substitute for trust. And uh, so we have to learn to do that trusting part again. I'll be definitely sure to, to check out this site and I'll share it as well openly. Um, one great. thing, just thinking about money and stuff as well, is because one of the major issues seems to be at the moment is, like we spoke before, it's printed out, out of thin air but so few people control so much. You know, um, it's not a decentralized system. It's all centralized. It comes from the central banks. You know, we're living in a system called fiat, fiat currency. You know, it's not backed by anything. It used to be backed by gold in the, in the 70s. And you know, it's been almost 50 years now, I think, since that's gone. And I think the last time something like that happened or it's gone that long, was it in, you know, Roman Empire, you know, once they started to cut up their gold and I think it lasted about 40, 50 years. So it seems like we're ripe for quite a change at some point. And I got a bit excited about it a few years ago. I'm not as excited as I was, but, you know, the idea of what the impact cryptocurrency can potentially have mm. on community. I know it's not... Uh, living in a shared free system, but the idea of it being decentralized and potentially mm -hmm. enabling people in certain parts of the world who don't have bank accounts, don't have um, ways to, you know, don't have an ID or a, a passport or anything to set something mm -hmm. up, but they're able to connect and, and share goods and yeah. services through that way. What are your sure. thoughts on that? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I have been excited about crypto as well. I mean, I, li I like to see crypto. I think it's, it's a definitely a positive step. I think it's um, yeah anything that sort of decentralizes um, our society is always a good idea. You know, we need to start start thinking about like a horizontal society instead of a vertical society. Um, but I think the, the the problem with crypto and the the reason that I think it, it hasn't taken off. I mean, you can't go down the local shop and buy a coffee with Bitcoin, or well, almost no place that can you do that. And I think what what gives fiat currency its value, obviously, is the fact that it's it's backed by government or the government, it's it's legal tender, and what that really means, I suppose, is that everyone everyone agrees, everyone in that society agrees that that is a de facto currency, and that's the only thing really that gives it value is that all our shared belief in that currency, that your pound, I know that your pound is the same as my pound. And that um, that is what gives us its value is that we all agree on that on that system, and obviously the problem with crypto is that you haven't just got Bitcoin, you've got like thousands and maybe hundreds of thousands of other ones out there, you know. So how do you create a de facto cryptocurrency when there's like just millions of them, you know? Because maybe I have Litecoin and you've got the Faircoin or whatever, and there's just millions of them everywhere. So uh, I don't know. 
I don't see I don't see a big future for crypto somehow. Um, I like the idea of it. Um, I I like to think that uh, that maybe this the idea of really paying someone with a bunch of computer numbers will kind of highlight the sort of futility of that anyway. Yeah, because one of the things with money, of course, is I mean we still we still have this kind of um, subconscious idea of hard cash, you know, coins and notes in your hand, and that physical substance lends weight to your your belief in it, you know, because it has 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 physical value, and um, I think that's probably a really one thing that's really in money's favor is the fact it does have a physical presence. You'll probably notice that, that a lot of countries now are think talking about going cashless. And um, that, that's kind of um, another interesting prospect. I think a lot of people are afraid of countries going cashless. I kind of would be too, because um, it means that you can't hide money in your mattress anymore. It means that you, you don't have control of any of your money. So you could have like a million pounds in your bank account, but somebody can just switch you off and now you have nothing, you know? So you have that, you're completely vulnerable there. So, um, but I think that um, the cashless society Again, it might have the same effect that I think crypto could have that would kind of eventually bring it home to people, the, the true valuelessness of money, that actually it's nothing really. I mean, a Bitcoin is just a fucking number and a cashless society, again, or it's just going to be a bank account with a number in a bank account. And um, I'm, well, I don't know, I would be cautiously optimistic that maybe those things kind of help people to, to view money for what it is, which is really just a shared belief and of course, we can change that belief at any moment. Any any moment. That's good to get your insight on um, on the cryptocurrencies and stuff. One thing that popped in my mind then is: so, if we were in a cashless society, how, like for instance, you know, how a home, you know, a set of homes going to be built? So, and if someone says, "Well, actually, I want a five-bedroom home, but I only want a two-bedroom home," where where does you know, where? You know, if there's not someone saying, well, I've got 500,000 to pay for the five-bedroom mm. one and I've got 200,000 to pay for the two-bedroom two one, I'm interested to get your thoughts on how that would be, you know, worked out. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that I wrote in the in the book, the F-Day book, was um, um, there was, um, it was like a fictional novel that uh, depicted um, a country, Iceland, who was adopting this money-free system. And one of the chapters in the book is kind of devoted to uh, doing a tour of Iceland operating this way and uh, how that actually works. Of course, it's, it's a work of fiction, so I'm kind of speculating. But uh, how I sort of envisioned that kind of thing was, it, it, for example, in one of the chapters, they were, they were building like a, a road bridge. You know, they had to build this big civic uh, structure. Okay, and uh, so um, this was my way of dealing with it. So how do you deal with big, expensive, complex projects like that? And this could apply to housing or to hospitals or, or schools or anything like that. And uh, what, what, what I proposed in that system was that, that you would, uh, obviously, you have to first appreciate that everyone is not working, so people have free time. So you, you, what you would do is you would basically try and uh, recruit a certain amount of volunteers, the amount of volunteers that you would need. And uh, then basically what you would do is you would get all these volunteers who were presumably enthusiastic about it to take some kind of a public pledge to say that they would contribute to this project to its completion. 
and um, that's and they, they would they would have like a kind of a, even a public ceremony about that to say, okay, we're, we have a hundred people here. Okay, we need to to give us a pledge that you're going to work on this project for the next five six months to completion. And of course, if they if they run away from the project after a couple of weeks, there's nothing you could do about that. But the point is that there's kind of like um, well, it's kind of like a shaming thing that you you know it's just kind of like a, they would lose some kind of um, stature for doing that. So, which I think is is not a bad thing because I think if you if you agree to do something at the at the outset, then you know and you're, you're obviously and assuming everything is in good faith, you should be able to um, see it through to completion. So that's one one way I was proposing that basically for large complex projects that people would take a public pledge towards actually um, seeing through that project. And of course, they would uh, all their needs would be catered for during that by other people because not just not just the people who are building your houses, it's the people, the ancillary services, people who are making the making the supplies for the builder, the people who are making the food for the builder, the people who are, I don't know, supplying the lorries, blah, blah, all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, that was, that's just my proposal that basically you would have um, a sort of a, a pledge system where people would actually pledge on, on projects like that. But the other thing is, is that um, uh, one, of the, one of the drawbacks, I think, of modern society is that we probably rely on other people too much. Uh, basically, if we pay, we pay to somebody to solve a problem for us, that's great, but it doesn't kind of teach us to solve the problem for ourselves. So that's a little bit of a, a controversial, a thorny point maybe for some people. But um, for example, if you if you want to build a house, if you want to build a five bedroom house, maybe I don't know what your sort of skill set is or what it might be, is, but I could probably I could probably upskill myself and and um, um, work towards maybe achieving that myself. With, with my own skills and maybe employing other people to help me do it. So I think that upskilling is something that we should be thinking about as well. You know, we're, I think we've become a little bit too helpless because of, the, because of the money, because we just pay to solve a problem, pay to solve a problem without ever learning to solve a problem ourselves. And we have this, we learn this kind of helplessness. And I think that we're, we're much more powerful and smarter than we, than we like to think. You know, so I think that, you know, if you take away that those other um, incentives, maybe it will force us to actually think through problems ourselves. Okay, like if I want a, a 10 bedroom house, okay, maybe no one's going to fucking help me build a 10 bedroom house. So maybe I'm going to have to build it myself and say, okay, well, how am I going to do that? Okay, well, maybe I can't do that or whatever. So I, I don't know, you made this a process of self-organization, I suppose, where society would, it wouldn't be like it would be now, you know, but it will organize in a different way. The important thing is that if it's, if it's more connected and if it's more um, fair, then um, it can actually hopefully organize itself in a better way than, than today. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. I like that idea of what, you know, you, you, you know, you commit to stuff and like you say, there's something very much going to the point about, you know, upscale, upscaling our own stuff. Um, you know, there's nothing like during lockdown. I've shared this a few times. So if anyone's heard this a few times on the podcast, please excuse me. But I built a chicken coop 
and I just made it from recycled pallets. And I asked people, I put it out on Facebook, says, anyone got any, any materials and building this? And someone turned up the day later and had this corrugated steel for the roof. And basically it cost me three pounds to make this big chicken coop. And I spent, I probably put about 60 hours into it. And I loved Mm. every single hour of that. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I just looked at some images online and I just made it up as I went along. Um, And like that, I could have went out and paid £300 for one, um, Mm. which actually wouldn't, I don't think it would have looked as good actually in the end. Um, Mm -hmm. But that would have been a simple transaction, pay for it, someone else has done it. Um, But actually doing something yourself, there's something really empowering about it. And, And one thing on that, I think one of the key things is in, in changing this society, it's got to be the way we educate kids. Like at the moment, we're educating kids to go out and to be in the workforce. And yep. what does that workforce even look like in 10, 20, 30 years with automation coming in, driverless cars? Mm-hmm. You know, is mm-hmm. what's like my mom um, and dad's, uh, particularly my mom, she worked in, in one industry for about 40, 40 odd years or more. Um, that's kind of gone now. You know, um, so it'd be interesting to get your insight on on that with the education system. Yeah, well, it's obviously yeah something that's been uh, heavily on my mind as well. In fact, a few years ago, we we re- we released um, an educational app called Life Games, um, which coincidentally enough is is kind of exactly what you're talking about. It's a <coughs> excuse me. It's basically um, an app of kids games like so that we can be played in the classroom or a group. And they basically teach cooperation, they teach empathy and compassion and um, sharing and all these kind of um, values that I think are lost and I think are important. Yeah, I mean, education has been like a, a real bugbear of mine because, as, as you say, I think that we're, we're driven into learning um, languages and mathematics and history and geography, which, while they are important, they are nowhere near as important as things like uh, relationships, um, understanding yourself and understanding your negative emotions and, uh, and learning how to communicate with other people and, uh, you know, and it's just really learning how to cooperate and work together with other people. Those things are, I mean, they're invaluable life skills and would be much more useful to any child now than algebra or anything like that. Not to say that those things are useless, but that the priority seems to be completely backwards again that we're we're really driving this sort of um heavy academic sort of um um challenge to people when actually the 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 real success of life and the success of anyone is never is almost never academic it's almost always how you communicate with other people how you present yourself how you feel about yourself how you feel about other people how you cooperate with other people i mean these things are, um, these are the, the, any successful person will, will tell you that, that, that it's really how you actually communicate and how you, how you are effective in, with other people is what make, what's makes success. And academic is, is really almost negligible. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still surprised that we still have that education system. I think it's getting better from what I, from, from what I hear from people that the classrooms and teachers are becoming a little bit more uh, liberal in their thinking and uh, more uh, eco-aware, certainly, and also more empathy-aware and um, um, sort of um, community-aware, I suppose. And uh, I'd, li- I'd like to see that, that um, happening more and more. 
uh, we released a, this app and a, a set of books uh, about two years ago now. Uh, unfortunately, we did we didn't we weren't in a position to continue promoting it because it was like it was a commercial project and we basically ran out of funds. So what we did was eventually we just made the app free. So the app was free there now. If anyone was interested, so you have like um, about two two or three hundred games for kids basically uh, that uh, teach these kind of values. So um, it's called Life Games. If anyone's interested in checking that out. But yeah, education, yeah, absolutely. And of course, if we start gravitating towards the different kind of society that you and I think is possible, then obviously education will, will have to catch up and because that's, that's going to be really crucial. You know, and how we define our success is based on how we are educated and uh, we need to redefine what success is, you know, and what, what failure is and what failure isn't. Um, one of the things that, I, I mean, for example, I, I really failed quite badly at school. Well, not, not badly, but I, I, I was below average student, shall we say. And um, that kind of left a sort of a, a mark on me for that. It took quite a long time for me to shift. I have to say, I, mean, I spent maybe first 20 years of my adulthood kind of with this, this backdrop of failure because I, I hadn't really excelled in academia and uh, it really it took me quite a while to actually shift that and that's a tough thing to shift you know because I, I, I was I had been graded by a system that was uh, that's I eventually realized was just not fair or was just um, not relating to how best I could perform to actually be successful and to be happy so that's um, that's the thing that uh, that's the, and I'm quite sure millions millions of people out there are this, are in the same situation that they've um, school has let them down or maybe they excelled really well in school they were fantastic students but they got nowhere in life afterwards and they felt kind of cheated by that as well so I'm sure that those kind of people exist as well so um, yeah education I would I would love to see radical radical overhaul education yeah. I love um, the homeschooling. A lot of people are homeschooling. I love the way um, those people are turned out because I know quite a few of these guys who have been homeschooled and like they're, wow, they, just, they think on a completely different level. You know, they really are, they're very fresh and, and not, um, not indoctrinated, I suppose. So uh, at the homeschooling is great. Um, more maybe group schooling. I think maybe... Homeschooling one child maybe on its own is probably not a great idea. If you can get groups of other parents or whatever doing the same thing, I think it would be the optimal way to do it. But uh, yeah, I mean that's that's the way it's been for whatever thousands of years before uh, schools came along 150 years ago, which I think, as you intimated there at the start, they were really um, they were sort of factories to create workers basically schools and this is what happened when the the advent of the industrial revolution then we had all these industrial schools basically springing up around that and this was the basis of modern society you know that you had red brick schools with little kids going in with uniforms and all learning their abcs and their one two threes and uh, really learning to comply really i suppose in a, in a lot of ways so I still think a lot of that system is still existing today, and I think we need to we need to really overhaul that. You know, we really have to rethink that. Yeah, well, thankfully, I feel like you know, obviously, we're speaking, and there's many other people who are along this train of thought, and you, know, you touched on it as well. Like a lot of teachers 
uh, sort of switching on now to the level of tests and grading and, you know, putting mm. kids in these boxes and putting them under so much pressure, like kids when they're seven or eight doing homework and tests and graduations and stuff. It's just, it's bonkers. Um, yeah. And it actually, um, I remember I've, I've got a side project I've been working on and it talks about education and kids and stuff. And it's basically all kids are born geniuses. It's something like mm. it, there was this thing, like some, a study was done to like 99% of three-year-olds are classed as creative geniuses. By the wow. time they get to seven, only 33% are. And when you wow. get in your 30s and 40s, only 1% are. So it's the system. The system appears to be trying to turn people into geniuses, but actually it's doing the opposite. We're already like yeah. that. We've, as you yeah. said, you know, we've already got them creative endeavors. Everyone's got a different approach. So if some people learn fast, some people learn slow. That doesn't mean they're any different. Mm-hmm. But the system says you have to learn this in this same amount of time, and then you have to sit down and do this test within two hours, and you'll get graded eight or whatever. And like you mm-hmm. say, you know, it took you twenty years to shake off some mm-hmm. of the, that mm-hmm. influence on you. And it's a, sh- mm-hmm. and I think us talking about it and some of the shifts. And I think is it Ken Robinson who's a a teacher who's done a, one of the most amazing TED talks and he talks about how important creativity is. And unfortunately it's just been eroded bit by bit mm. and it's getting taken over. It's still in schools, but there's less sort of weight put towards it. Um, sure, sure. But yeah, I'm very uh, um, interested in homeschooling and obviously with COVID, a lot of parents have been forced into that. Mm-hmm. Now yeah. I'm sure a lot of them couldn't wait to get out of it as well because it was a lot of them, you know, it wasn't a transition to it. It was like, right, I've got to work full time at my desk and I've got to teach the kids. So maybe that's not the best introduction to it, but I do think, um, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so we'll see. Yeah, it's not for everyone, not for every parent, of course. Yeah, but I think that there is, um, I think there is a responsibility for parents um, that maybe the, that maybe a lot of parents don't really, face up to that you bring a child into this world well that that's great but um, a lot of them they'd really export their child to to paid uh, care services all the time you know and um, i don't know it's uh yeah it's a bit of a controversial point but i think that yeah if you're going to be a parent then be a be a parent and uh, and stop uh, exporting the problem just because it's it's making a bit too much noise or messing up the place I don't know. Um, I'm not a parent myself, so I can't really speak professionally. <laughs> but um, I think that, yeah, it's homeschooling is, it doesn't have to be like nine to five schooling or something like that. It can just really be just a good grounding in, in life, really. And I think that's, and, and the basic facts, the important facts um, about the world. I think that that's really important. Of course, you need to know the, something about the world you live in, but I think most importantly, you need to know about how to get on with other people. And probably if there's one, the thing I learned most and the best in school was probably my social life, the people that I knew, the, the friends that I had in school and the things that worked and didn't work with those guys, you know, the fights or the not or the, the makeups and all that sort of stuff, you know, and I, those to me were the most valuable lessons in school. Um, rather than the academic stuff. So um, certainly, yeah, the social thing is, is really important. So that's why, uh, yeah, homeschooling, I think, for one or maybe two kids is probably not a good idea. It's better to have little small groups, maybe five, six or seven or more, and um, that kind of stuff. So, uh, but yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, it's, um, it's something you might be considering yourself maybe in a few years' time.
Yeah, it is. It's something with what we've talked about and realizing what the system is in place. Do I really want to um, put my child through that? Now I've got friends who homeschool and Mm. it's a great environment. They create one afternoon. They spend a week with the grandparents and they cook all that afternoon. Mm. Like the the, the grandma's passing on that knowledge of how to bake and make food. Fantastic. They go to forestry school one day a week and they're with like 20 other homeschool kids. And throughout oh. the rest of the week, the, the mum that I know, she's an ex-teacher. So she has about five homeschool kids come to her. And so yeah. it's done in that way that you're talking about, not just in, I think some people think, oh, homeschool kid, it's just them on their own stuck with the parents, but it doesn't have to be like that. And it's no. actually surprising how many people do it. Like mm. where we are, there's literally in, in the boroughs close by, there's thousands of kids which are homeschooled. Wow, so that's great. You wouldn't actually think, you'd think if you just mm. plugged into the mainstream, you'd think it was just this, it was yeah. right on the peripheral and not many people are doing it. But I think there's that many people who are questioning oh. the way the world is going. And actually then yeah. realizing, like you touched on, why some people go to work to just pay mm. for someone else mm. to look after the kid. And, mm-hmm. and, it, and maybe sometimes that's because they're focused on the career and that's okay. Mm-hmm. But I think sometimes mm-hmm. it's absolving their own responsibility. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and take, I think so. Taking on that ownership. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing um, is Steiner schools is a really good program that is quite, quite popular in Europe anyway. And you've, you know, some people who are, the kids went to Steiner schools. I know one, one story, a friend of mine, he had a, like a, maybe a six-year-old and an eight-year-old boy or something like that. And they were in a Steiner school and they were kind of, people were shocked because they were, they were cooking and they were using knives. They were using sharp knives to, to cut food at six years old, you know, and a, this would be like a, a shock horror in, in normal schools, you know, but I mean, of course, I mean, of course kids should be able to, to learn how to use sharp knives at an early age, you know, I mean, of course, why not? You know, it's, it's another thing that possibly has nothing to do with the money free society, but the idea is that of sort of really, wrapping our kids way too much in cotton wool as well nowadays, I think is uh, something that is an awful shame, I think, really, you know, I mean, there's, there's no such thing as kids running around out the road playing on their own anymore. There's always a parent in tow following on behind and looking over the shoulder for pedophiles and all this kind of ridiculous carry on, you know, this, this such, there's such a fear of uh, that your child is going to be abducted, you know, it's a sort of people doing this everywhere, you know, and, uh, this is completely irrational fear. It's not like that at all. And um, I don't know. So, of course, yeah, no one wants their kid to be the one that's abducted. I understand that. But I think that that, that, that media-driven fear has, has uh, is impacted a lot on society as well, that uh, people don't feel safe for going out. But the actual fear is, I mean, statistically, the chances of that happening are absolutely negligible, probably. And uh, yet, where everyone is just completely fearful that the worst is always going to happen, and you've only got to look at the, the headlines and all the, the newspapers, the tabloids and stuff to to see the kind of messages people are getting, you know. Um, so that's a shame as well. It's nothing really to do with um, like the sort of stuff that I promote. But I, I would like to see uh, kids going out and cutting their knee and getting dirty and climbing trees when I like the thing that I did. But that seems to be uh, the exception now rather than the norm, you know. Yeah. Kids are kind of, um, they're really, they're either indoors all the time playing games or they're um, in school or in care, 
or in sports or in something, some other organized program of some kind, but uh, not just hanging out and being kids. There's very little of that going on, you know. Well, mind you, I'm not, I'm not the perfect role model. I was probably hanging around smoking when I was 11 and 12, so that's probably not the ideal role model either. But yeah, I mean, I, I went out and I got my knees dirty and uh, cut my elbows and all that sort of stuff and fell off my bike several times. So uh, how many kids can say that nowadays? <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah, it's true. And, and, and you use the word fear quite a bit. And I love that thing that people say, like fear is basically false event appearing real. And wow, that's good. I didn't hear that. That's nice. Uh, and then you, when you think about it, like, you know, you got, that's when you've got to think about, is it rational what I'm thinking about? Is it, is that just my own insecurities and my own fears? Cause let's be honest, 99.99% of things you worry about never happen. But no. unfortunately they end up dictating our lives and driving the direction that we go in and preventing us from really living a full, fulfilled life at times. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And a lot of it is to do with this sort of tabloid newspaper thing, which I, obviously if they tap into that fear, they know that basically if they can tap into that fear, then they can sell a paper, you know? So they put a big headline of, you know, someone someone is a beast. They usually always use this word beast, I've <laughs> noticed actually. So they kind of, uh, they, they shock people into some sort of emotive reaction Then they can get their quid off you or whatever. And uh, you buy the paper and you go home and read that and you're, you think the world is an awful place, you know? And I mean, let's, we shouldn't pretend ever that um, we're just unaffected by the stuff that we see on the TV, the stuff that we read, you know, there's, there's kind of, um, there's this kind of a false sort of blasé attitude about that. You know, people say, ah, it's just a movie. Ah, it's just a video game. Ah, it's just a stupid book. It's just a stupid newspaper. But the reality is we are affected by those things. We're, we are indirectly and strongly affected by the by the information that we consume there's absolutely no doubt about that you know somebody once pointed out i think there was a great meme on facebook about uh something along the lines of um if if or people say like video games don't don't create violence you know and yet they kind of say well but people will companies will spend millions of dollars putting an advert for beer in uh, in the super bowl why do they do that? Because they know that it's going to work. They know that they, when they invest, why else would a company invest millions to put an ad on Super Bowl? Because they know it's going to work. They know it's going to affect people. It is going to change their mind. And then how can you on the same, how can you say that a violent movies and violent video games aren't making people more violent? I mean, it's, it's completely facetious to say that one thing is true and the other isn't true. No, of course, um, uh, violent movies and video games are normalizing that kind of behavior. I've, I've no doubt whatsoever in my mind that there would be no shoot-ups in American schools had there been no violent movies uh, accessible to kids and violent video games. I mean, this is this is absolutely where it comes from. You know, there's just there's no, there's no other explanation for it. You know, I mean, a, a kid gets pissed off and he goes and grabs his father's gun and goes and shoots the teacher. I mean, it just you don't you don't uh, invent that stuff yourself, you know. I mean, you 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 learn that from somewhere. It's normalized somewhere, you know. And when you see it, so many of the movies nowadays are just it's just absolutely normalized violence, like it's completely irrelevant, you know. Like the guy goes and shoots five or six. I, I was watching a movie the other day with uh, Mark Wahlberg or something like that, this actor, and I think in the first in the first like thirty seconds, I think he had shot about ten people. I mean, literally in the beginning of the movie, just bang, 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 and all those sort of stuff. And I think, it, you know, it's, 
it just looks like a game. It looks like a video game and that sort of stuff. But you, ha- you can't deny that it's normalizing a type of behavior and it, that can certainly create that kind of behavior in other people, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I know. Um, yeah. it, 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 for instance, you, you know, you, if you go, if you watch a comedy, you know, and you have a, you, you have a really good laugh, you know, you can see the effect that has on you during it. And then after it, you feel yeah. lighter, you wake up yeah. with a bit of a spring in your step. It's like you've had a release, yeah. you know, so yeah. It, yeah. it's the polar opposite. If you're, you know, mm. like hiding behind the sofa, watching something or even because one, it doesn't, it doesn't take you long. It only takes you a few minutes to almost be locked into something and then you're mm-hmm. tuned into it. And you know what it's like if you're in a cinema and someone jumps out and gets shot, you jump as well. So there's literally mm-hmm. a, yeah. a physical mm-hmm. effect on yeah. you and your being. So yeah, it's really, yeah. Um, it is, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting when you go into it and like you say, a lot of people just dismiss it and think, Oh, it's fine. You know, but I, I know yeah. my cousin, she watched the shining, I think when she was in her teenage years, she's only about 13, 14 and she's still terrified to this day. Like yeah. 25 years on, it's mm, had, mm. Su- had such an impact on her that mm. that's, you know, made her feel fearful of the dark and, and all sorts of stuff. But sure, sure. And whatever, whatever age she was when she watched that, if you imagine how many other kids are watching similar movies where there was like a particularly violent content or something like that, or where they shoot the parents or, or where there's something really shocking and violent happens. I mean, you have to say that a certain percentage of those kids will seek, if, if, they, if they don't act, they might even think of repeating that behavior. They might say, well, this is something that, you know, I would like to do, and this is, it's okay for me to do that, you know? Um, it's not okay, you know, of course. So, yeah, mixed sort of moral messages out there for profit, basically. <laughs> well, hopefully, with the stuff that you're talking about and the systems we're going to go to, then, you know, it's going to do away with a lot of this stuff. And I think when you talk about uh, advertising stuff, I think it reminds me of a few cities. I think it might be Cuba or... Or certain mm. places like there's no ad, there was no advertising for so many years, and they mm. did studies on the people, and it showed how much happier they were, and also how much more mm. comfortable they were in their own skin. Like if you pick up yeah. a magazine, you're just seeing beautiful people, but the reality is that that isn't what ninety odd percent of people look like. Yet we're mm. given this aspiration, and then when you've got Facebook and Twitter, and people can put all these different filters on stuff to make themselves not even look like they are anymore. And you mm. wonder where that comes from. Well, it comes from advertising. Mm. It comes from the subliminal messages that have been, we've been bombarded yeah. for every single day of our lives and our parents have. And, our, you, know, it, 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 you know, that's why mm. hopefully we can mm. shift to a new way. But, yeah, it's... Um, yeah. it's, it's, it's not, again, it's like normalization, you know, whereas one thing would normalize is violence. So normal, this, something normalizes a certain level of beauty. And uh, yeah, that's it's it's completely bonkers, yeah, as you would say. I, I remember her reading one story of some some girl in Los Angeles who went to a plastic surgeon, asking him to make her look more like her Instagram filter, <laughs> which I thought was kind of bizarre. <laughs> oh God. So um, yeah, kind of gone a bit crazy there. I think yeah, absolutely. Well, I, th- I think once you become aware of these things now, like we're talking about it, and more people are, as soon as you become conscious of it. Like you can, then you can start to change the habits and you can go on yeah. a different path and you can see it from what it is and you can let it go. And I kind of want to bring this back a little bit to what's going on, what you're talking about and stuff, and maybe just touch on your books before we kind of wrap up. And I know you mentioned F Day, the, the second dawn of the man. Is yeah. now, 
And I understand that you're writing a, am I right? You're writing a movie script for that at the moment? Yeah, actually. Um, there's a guy um, in uh, a movie producer in Reno um, has expressed an interest in co-writing in, well, we are writing it. We're co-writing the screenplay now. I've just, We've just finished like the first 30 pages or something like that. It'll, it'll probably be something like 200 pages. And um, yeah, it's really exciting project because um, number one, I think that it's, it's a really good timely project because we have all this stuff going on now with the, you know, uh, Extinction Rebellion and Greta Thunberg and all this kind of, um, kind of like urgency going on in terms of with the, the environment and um, and of course with the social change and COVID, of course, has helped a little bit as well. So there's a kind of a cocktail of things happening there, which kind of means that uh, this could be a good uh, appetite for this kind of story out there in a movie format. And um, the guy who I'm working with, uh, he has lots of really good contacts over in LA, and he has also said that he knows and uh, he knows kind of for a fact that a lot of sort of people working in that business now, they are also starting to see things, see things differently. They want to start seeing uh, changes and different sort of, uh, they want to start promoting different alternatives, you know. Um, obviously, you have the, the very vocal ones like uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, who's very um, environmentally conscious, and George Clooney and others like that. These are kind of the A-listers, but there's a, there's a whole lot of like uh, guys in the back that you wouldn't like producers and directors who are thinking along these lines as well. So it's a good possibility that we can maybe make this movie. You know, it's obviously it's dependent on raising uh, finance. Of course, that will be the, the biggest object. But uh, um, there is a possibility that it's um, it could be a good time for us. You know, so we're really excited about that. Actually, the 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 book or the story itself is basically about um, it's about a guy who um, sort of uh, creates this uh, countdown clock. Uh, he says, okay, we're, go we're going to have a, a world without money and I'm going to set a date. Okay, it's going to happen on this date. And he just picks a date out of midair. And then basically the whole story unfolds as to how it actually counts down to that date. And uh, it's, it's quite, um, it's quite a, an exciting, dramatic story. So it's kind of, it's good. It has a sort of a, a tension going throughout. So as the, the, this countdown timer is going. So um, yeah, it's, it has a lot of really... Uh, really good um, supportive comments and stuff about it. A lot of people excited about this story. So, yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic, cautiously optimistic that maybe we can make this movie. But uh, it still remains to be seen. We're certainly we're only like a little bit of the whatever, first, first act of the screenplay is done now. Stuff now, his fusion might have been a word. There was a bit of a, um, the sound was going a little bit at the end there. His, um, his voice was breaking up a little bit. So I'll just recap on some of them things. I'm not even sure how much of this I'm going to include in it, but you're speaking about his two books. Um, one of them being the, um, the Into the Open Economy, which is available for free download on Amazon, which is amazing. You know, how many um, opportunities do we get for free stuff? And he's obviously, um, living by his words and um willing to you know put his um money where his mouth is but it isn't money anymore is it um and of course the second book which is f day the second dawn of man and it's really it sounds really exciting very interesting that'd be great if that gets turned into a film one day and then of course his two sites you can go onto the free world charter website you can basically 
um, sign up, basically put your name on it. I remember I did it about a month or two ago when I first heard about Colin and the Free World Charter. Almost like you're taking a vote, you, you know, you're voting for this kind of world and whether it happens in our lifetime or it's just a pipe dream. But I think the more that we set our intentions towards the kind of world that we want to live in, and our actions are very much a part of that, a massive part of that. We might think, oh, something like that will never happen. It can't happen. You know, there's too many things in the way. But actually, only takes a few of us actually to make big shifts and to go down different directions. So sign up on there. There's also, is it Sherbay, where I think there's about 2,000 people on there now where we can share of our skill set and we can ask for other people to do things for us and just do it all without the exchange of money, all based on us being willing to contribute, willing to share. And I know from my own life when I've done stuff like that, like, you know, the way the universe works, the way the law of attraction works, like almost like things just come back to you magically. So anyway, I've really enjoyed this chat. I'm feeling really energized from it. And I'll... um yeah, so if you've listened to this, if you've enjoyed it, please share this episode with a friend. I'd really appreciate that. If you are listening to it on YouTube, you can subscribe to this channel so you never miss an episode. I'm also doing a mailing list now, so if you want to sign up on that, I'll include, start including links to the mailing list so you can. That's probably the best way to to stay informed on the on this podcast because you know sometimes if you're on social media or things things can get missed. Um, and if you enjoy this and you want to become a member, you can join my Patreon page um, for as you know, little as the price of a cup of coffee each month. You can become a member and help me to continue to put this content out there. Even though I say in this podcast, like I love to do this for free and I would continue to. However, I would love this to be a part of me um, transitioning to you know, doing something like this full time. Um, and, but of course I have this house to pay for and I have other things to pay for. So there's obviously a balance and stuff. And, and you guys, if you're willing to come along on that journey with me, support me, then that would be amazing. But anyway, guys, until next time, have a good one.